Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to all of our listeners. You are invited into the consultation room with the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. If you or anyone you know has a dangerous food allergy, you won't want to miss a word of this podcast. Food allergies are the most urgent problem in the field of allergy today. It causes anguish, embarrassment, in some cases, heartbreak to so many families. Treatment for food allergies has been unsuccessful in the past and elusive for decades, but no longer. My guest today, Dr. Mary Morris, has been at the forefront in pioneering safe, effective treatments for a range of dangerous food allergies for the past three decades. Just before I introduce Dr. Mary as her patient's caller, I have to tell a story I've told many times to patients who've asked me about my career. And so I'll try to keep it short, but I think it's so important that all of the listeners have this in context. I went into practice in the early 1990s as a classically trained allergist, and I was giving allergy injections. And as my practice got built up and I was seeing more and more patients, each year, few patients would get what's called an anaphylactic or severe allergic reaction from the injections. And it didn't have anything to do with giving a wrong dose. It just could happen. And when this actually happened in my practice in 1998, it was just around this time in May in New York, I had a patient that had a severe allergic reaction to the injections. I had to go to the hospital with her, and thank God she pulled through. And that was sort of a life-changing moment for me. I had to decide, did I want to continue to give allergy injections because I thought there obviously was some severe risks with it, or I was contemplating actually thinking of leaving the field of allergy and just continuing maybe in internal medicine and teaching. But I was really fortunate that same day that this reaction happened to read an article in an obscure journal in allergy and dermatology called CUTIS, in which there was an article written by Dr. David Morris writing about sublingual allergy desensitization for patients. And I read that article, and my life and the life of my patients was never the same after that. Dr. Morris talked about how he would successfully desensitize patients to various allergic chemicals and environmental allergies. And I contacted Dr. Morris. This was actually before the internet. And uh, I was able to track him down through one of my membership books. And I flew out to La Crosse, Wisconsin and spent several days training with him and learning how he did this other method called sublingual allergy immunotherapy or more well-known as allergy drops. Dr. Morris was a tremendous innovator, a tremendous person in general. And his practice, which was really run incredibly, just opened my eyes. I was also fortunate to meet at that time one of the youngest members of the group, Dr. Mary Morris, who happened to be Dr. David Morris's daughter, who joined the group. And at the time, I, you know, Mary was lovely. I was so glad to meet her. Little did I know at that time what a force she would be in pushing forward and helping to bring to fruition a way to treat 
severe food allergies and other environmental allergies. So after that long introduction, I'd love to welcome Dr. Mary Morris to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, let Mary, let's jump right in because so many people, I think so many times get, get teased or I call it the hype. You know, they'll hear on the TV, oh, new breakthrough therapy and this is going to cure, you know, all of your allergies only to find out either they don't work or that they're years in the making. So I want to ask you right off the bat, can you successfully treat a child or adult with a dangerous food allergy? Indeed, we can. We have been treating for severe food allergies actually since the late 1960s in our clinic. So interestingly, when I joined the clinic, my dad had already been treating children and adults for serious food allergies, including things like egg, milk, and peanuts. Now, back in the 70s, early 80s, Peanut allergy wasn't as common as it is now, but there certainly were people that had anaphylaxis to those foods even back then. So I remember meeting your dad, and he showed me a paper that he was working on. This was back in 1998, and and my jaw dropped, literally, when he showed me that he was doing this for peanut. And as you and I both know that peanut, along with all the other tree nuts and shellfish, are very common allergens and extremely dangerous. You know, in fact, I just saw a patient this morning who it runs in the family. The father gets anaphylaxis or severe allergies to shellfish. The son has it now. So if you could please explain what you're doing to help make the lives of these patients safer. I learned from my dad the protocol of starting with a very small concentration of whatever the person's allergic to and gradually increasing those doses over the course of several months, even up to a couple of years. And by doing it slowly, gradually, we have extreme, extremely good safety profile with using sublingual immunotherapy. One thing that when I joined the practice, I kept looking around going, Dad, people don't really know how to do this. Mm. We really need to get researchers involved and try to prove using randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials to show that it actually was not only safe but effective. So I learned the protocol, was practicing for many, many years with my dad, and then decided that I would try to approach some of the top researchers in the United States and see if they could actually do these types of studies. So one of the researchers that I had approached, we were able to do a protocol that used the experience from our clinic along with his top academic research facility and actually do the trials that were needed to show that sublingual immunotherapy worked for peanut. When I would talk to other allergists, everyone would say, well, if you can show that it works for peanut, then we'll believe it. So that was why we had chosen You know, it's interesting you're saying, you know, I used to say years ago that the holy grail in allergy was coming up with a way to desensitize patients to peanut. I mean, it's become such a dramatic epidemic 
And the other thing, which I just want the listeners to be aware of, is you can imagine, I mean, it's almost mind-boggling to think that you could give someone an allergen, like a peanut, in a very low dose, not get a severe reaction, and actually build up their immunity so that they are tolerant to a, a peanut. And I think that's what your group has done so successfully you know, in, you know, the hundreds of maybe thousands of cases you've treated because people are so petrified. I'm sure you've seen the the children or even the adults that are worried to eat out in restaurants, you know, to travel, or even if someone on a plane is next to them eating a peanut, they're worried that they're going to have a severe allergic reaction. Can you explain a little bit too for the listeners? Because they're hearing some different things that are going on, the difference between, because the two main therapies that I think are available that they should be aware of is what's called oral allergy immunotherapy, or OIT, and the sublingual allergy immunotherapy, which, again, is your expertise. Maybe just comparing a little bit, you know, the safety, the convenience of doing it, you know, and how they compare in efficacy. Well, well I think when we first started doing the research studies, the researcher that I was working with thought, well, if we do high doses are more aggressive, even if there are reactions along the way, maybe we have the chance of curing this indefinitely. So that is something that was thought probably 15 years ago, that that oral immunotherapy was going to allow you to tolerate big amounts, you know, have peanut butter sandwiches every day kind of thing. Sublingual immunotherapy uses much smaller quantities. So, for example, with peanut oral immunotherapy trials, typically 2,000 to 4,000 milligrams was needed to see an effect. Where with sublingual immunotherapy, we take a much smaller amount, 2 to 4 milligram amount, put it under the tongue, and it's taken up and interacts with the immune system that way. So we avoid the stomach acid, digestion, all of those sorts of things. And because of that, we can get a level of tolerance even with that minuscule amount of antigen that we're giving the person. Because the dose is so much smaller, obviously safety is better. So one of the things that I think really is important for patients to talk to their allergist about is what are their goals? If their goal is to safely treat their child to the point where they don't have to worry about an accidental exposure, then sublingual immunotherapy by far is the best choice in my opinion. We don't have anaphylaxis to treatment. We don't have eosinophilic esophagitis from the treatment. We don't have people having reactions at home in an unsupervised setting. Um, So sublingual immunotherapy safety-wise, by far, it shows a better safety profile. With the efficacy, we know that we now have multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials showing that we can achieve at least 500 to 1,000 milligrams of peanut protein. And if we can tolerate that amount, the risk with an accidental exposure 
you know, eating out, cross-contamination, one bite of something containing peanut, we know that that's less than that amount. So we decrease the risk of a bad reaction a hundredfold right out of the blocks. And within a couple of years on immunotherapy, the studies that are doing longer follow-up, like four-year follow-up, some of those Children can handle a total of 4,000 milligrams of peanut protein. It's equivalent of kind of 10 peanuts without a reaction. I think it's so important if the, the listeners think for a second, you have one peanut in your hand, and that's equivalent to about yeah. 300 milligrams of peanut protein, correct? Correct. And I think what's really important about the sublingual drops versus the oral which is actually uh, put in a capsule, and which is really fascinating, is that with the sublingual drops, you're basically taking one hundredth of uh, one one hundredth one one hundredth, right? Just a very small amount. So yeah. some people might think it's even homeopathy, but it's not. You're actually giving, no. but just a very small amount. And I remember what you taught me, which was so interesting, you know, from the studies and everything that when patients even do this on a regular basis. They're able to tolerate up to, I believe, was it three or four peanuts? About um... Yeah, right. It, within a year, the studies are showing. And, and if you give it longer, the amount is even higher, kind of 9 to 11 peanut range. So those are levels that are clinically meaningful, meaning if, if you can tolerate two, three, four peanuts, your risk of just accidentally getting an exposure and having a severe reaction just drops drastically. If keeping the child safe is the most important thing, sublingual immunotherapy has absolutely been shown to to be able to do that. Yeah, I think hands down, as I said, the work that you've done and now that the research is also supporting that is so important. I love the story. I remember reading one of, uh, maybe it was on your website, that there was a little boy who was very highly allergic to peanut and had gone through your treatment. And one day, his mom, being like a good mom, and also especially a peanut allergic mom, she was going through his backpack one day, and then her heart dropped. She opens up the the backpack, (laughs) and she sees a granola wrapper there. And the mom almost has a feeling there's got to be peanut in there. Of course, then she looks down the ingredients, and sure enough, peanuts in there. She goes racing to her son's room, only to find him fine doing his homework on his computer. And she goes, did you eat that granola bar? And he goes, yeah, how long ago? Oh, a few hours ago. And she goes, I'm fine. And I thought that yeah. really portrays, I mean, because we all know, I, my son's best friend growing up had severe peanut allergy. Every time he came over to our house, his mom actually liked when he came over to our house because I'm an allergist. She thought he was safe. And he was always with his fanny pack, with his epinephrine, with his all his medications. And I think for the, the children, I think for the parents, this is such, again, a game changer, not only in immunologically building up this protection, but psychologically that, you know, you just don't have to be petrified of eating a food that you're highly allergic to. I think the other thing, too, that the listeners should understand a little bit better, the oral immunotherapy, which is being done in several academic centers and a few private practices around the country. I've spoken to, you know, some of the doctors, you know, who are doing this and, Fortunately, they are successful in desensitizing patients, but it does come at a cost. There are a lot of reactions. 
in the process of doing this desensitization when it's the oral, meaning, again, when they're swallowing these capsules that contain peanut or egg or milk protein, whereas with the sublingual, again, at a much lower dose, and also it's done in a convenient, you know, squirt bottle, yet you really seem to avoid all these reactions, which is great for the patient and for the doctor getting those calls, right? Correct, correct. And I think one of the concerns I have about the oral immunotherapy that only now do we really recognize is that we had thought initially with the capsules that once you got to a certain level and you were able to tolerate it, that things would be fine, that no reactions mm-hmm. could occur later on. But unfortunately, with capsule immunotherapy, if a child has a fever, uh, onset of periods, exercise, all of those things unfortunately have caused anaphylaxis in children who are already on the maintenance dose, where with allergy drops, we don't have to worry about concurrent illnesses, exercise. There are no restrictions. Yeah, that's, that's We don't huge. see reactions that's at huge. all. The other thing, too, with the oral, you know, with the capsule, is that apparently also the patients are supposed to eat like eight or nine peanuts when they're on a maintenance. Try to get a teenager or anybody, you know, who is allergic <laughs> to a food saying, oh, here's my supply of uh, peanuts today that I have to maintain, whereas obviously with the drops... It's in a, a small right. dropper bottle, and you just have to. I always tell patients when you're brushing your teeth, just make sure you do your drops, and you're going to be fine. So it, I think it is a lot easier in a lot of ways too. And the other thing I want to bring up, because people always ask, and I, I think it's so important to clarify this, is what they call FDA status. You know, the sublingual drops, whether it's for environmental, which I've done the last twenty years, and I know you guys have done it probably forty some odd years. You know, they always say, "Oh, they're Almost not 50. 50 years. Okay, half a century (laughs) are are not FDA approved. I know how I explain it to patients, but I just want to hear your, the way you approach it. Because I think between the two of us, I think the the public will get a a really good idea of what does it mean, you know, to something be FDA approved or off-label. So what's what's your explanation to patients when they ask you this question? So the FDA approves products. So if someone wants to make say the oral immunotherapy capsule that's one one size fits all Mm. um, and doctors write a prescription for it and fill it at the pharmacy. That's something that requires FDA approval. Our medical licenses allow us to use our best judgment and use whatever treatment we feel is best with the patient with their understanding and consent. Just like with allergy injection immunotherapy, we use standardized extracts that are under the FDA review, but we customize them for each patient. So depending on what you're allergic to, how allergic you are, we mix them for that individual patient. So for airborne allergy things, the extracts that we use are identical to what an allergist would mix and give for an allergy shot. It's just instead of giving it by an injection, we use those same extracts and put them under the tongue. Same is true for food items. Hmm. We get the extracts from antigen manufacturers, just like every allergist does. They're typically used for skin prick testing for diagnostic purposes. 
and we take those exact same extracts that every allergist has sitting on their shelf, and we custom mix them for the individual patient. So it's an off-label use, meaning it's not a standard product, but it is certainly something that allergists have done for 100 years, that we take the things the person's allergic to. It's not a drug. It's small amounts of what the person is actually allergic to and use it to build up their own immune system tolerance to them. Yeah, I think the beauty of it, and you explained it really nicely, is that the allergy extracts are essentially natural substances that are in nature already. We know that it has a huge safety profile long-term because thank God no one's ever been reports of cancer or anything, long-term autoimmune diseases. So we know it's really safe. So right, what what we're both saying is that giving it off-label, meaning we're using a safe substance, we're just using it in a different route, you know, obviously under the tongue instead of injecting it. So to me, it's the it's a win-win. And as you know, you know, these things would never be approved by a drug company to, to do this because they would have to spend a gazillion dollars, you know, with all the clinical trials for something that they can't even patent. Right. And I think listeners should know also, I was just reading the paper today or I heard on the news, you know, again, stem cells, which are, again, not FDA approved, but they're letting them do it, are, again, taking your own natural cells and, again, orthopedists and other people are in- injecting into joints. Again, this is, again, more of a procedure. You know, they're using cells that are not, you know, it's not a new drug or something that hasn't been tested. And then I hate to say this, but the, in the converse of things, you know, we know from a lot of reporting, I mean, the FDA approved opiates for long-term use. So... I think you right. have to take with a grain of salt what it means to be FDA approved, unfortunately. And I, I think that from your clinic's experience, my own in doing this 20, 20 years, the safety profile is incredible. And that should give patients, right. you know, a lot of solace and again, deciding if they want to try to strive for, you know, for the benefit of it. So I'd like to, Dr. Morris, go back again to who do you feel is a good candidate for the sublingual food allergy drops? I mean, who would you say don't do it or who would you say I think you should, you know, consider this? The issue I think is, is it really important to build up that safety margin? So there there are families and children that are very comfortable with just avoidance and carrying their EpiPen and for them that the daily administration of something to prevent a problem, you know, maybe that's not right for them. But if it's a family, especially a family that has a lot of anxiety about travel, about school, about going to a friend's house, um, those are the families that I think we have already a safe and effective treatment for gaining a safety margin. The protocols I've shared, they're published. If their allergist wants to look up the protocol for how to do sublingual immunotherapy for peanut, they're in the published studies exactly step-by-step how to do it. The extracts that are used are identical to what they already have sitting in their fridge. So I think it's for that set of families who really want to make sure that their child is safe and the way that we get them safe is also extremely safe, then I think the allergy drop way of doing it is is 
in my opinion, the best way to go. I am a believer. I agree. Do you also feel a certain thing about age? Do you feel that, I mean, I've seen in the studies where they'll do it as young as one or two years old. Sometimes I personally feel that might be a little young. Maybe Maybe the child will grow out of the allergy. Do you have any parameters? You know, deciding also, obviously, you have to worry about compliance, even with the drops, which are easy to do, but the parent has to be very vigilant and about doing it regularly. Do you have any sort of guidelines, you know, you, you know, as far as starting the drops on, on the children? I, I actually think the immune system, while it's still developing in those two, three, four, five, six-year-olds, um, actually is easier to change the path with allergy drops than in an adult. I know that we have treated successfully teenagers, adults. Certainly those people still are responsive to treatment, but I think it takes longer. So similarly to some of the early introduction of food studies, for example, with peanut, I do think there's an opportunity in the younger children to change the entire course of their allergic disease and even future development of allergies. So we know with, for example, airborne allergy immunotherapy, if we see a child that's only dust mite allergic and we start treating them for their dust allergy at age three, four years old, their risk of development of other airborne allergies, and even their development of asthma is markedly lower. So from my standpoint, in America, we don't really give allergy shots under the age of six. And I think we as allergists are really missing a golden opportunity for intervening and stopping the allergic march. So not only food, but even airborne treatment in a young child, allergy drops are the way to go for sure, just because we don't have any severe reactions with them. Do you have your um, your patients or even the children take probiotics as well too? I've seen that in some... I do. You do? Because you're yep. hoping to change the microbiome, the, you know, the balance of the good and the bad bacteria in their system? Exactly. And I, I think there's enough evidence now that I don't think it would be harmful so anybody I have on food immunotherapy, for sure, we recommend a probiotic. Can you explain, too, that in your protocols that it's also you don't necessarily have to treat for one allergen. You can, again, which is fascinating because, again, sometimes even the products that come out from the pharmaceutical companies, it's only for one allergen. I mean, there are a couple of treatments now. I think one of them I just saw a immune or something. They're going to come out with a patch. I don't know if it's working or not, but what you can do with the sublingual drops is mix and match. If Obviously, if a child or adult has a milk, egg, peanut, all three of those allergens, you can treat all three? That is correct. Tree nuts as well. Certainly, we can treat for all of those at this time also. Often, the children who have peanut, egg, milk allergy They also have airborne allergies, or if they haven't already, oftentimes they'll develop them in early childhood. So I believe it is a definite advantage to be able to treat their airborne allergies and all of their food allergies simultaneously. And I think that was one of the things that my dad was just 
brilliant in figuring out that similarly to how we give allergy shots in America where we don't only do dust mite or only do grass shots, he figured out a way to treat for all of them simultaneously. Same thing with foods. He figured out that there was no problem with with the protocol that we have being able to treat things simultaneously. So he figured that out just by treating lots and lots and lots of patients and observing them. You know, I'm going to ask you something else. It's a slightly sensitive topic, but, you know, my, my, you know, again, my podcast is called The Smartest Doctor in the Room, but I I really feel you and your dad were the bravest doctors in the room (laughs) that I know. Oh, I I I know. I can't even imagine. Well, I know your dad, dad, yeah, when he would tell me stories about how he was one of the first people to use the defibrillators when they first came out, you know, in, in, you know, for patients. Yeah. But what I want to ask with you. The eighth time in the whole entire world. Really? Yeah. He, Talk he was, about. Yeah. He was and now it's common. I know. Of course. You it's, know. you know, it's like people would laugh if you didn't use it. In fact, obviously, they have it in all the, you know, ball fields and everywhere in public exactly. places. You know, your dad and I were talking once. I think it was, I heard this from another doctor. He said, you know, you can always tell the pioneer they have the arrows sticking out of their back. Yeah, and I used to say to him, you know, Dad, people can be 10 years ahead of their time. Mm. If you're 50 years ahead of your time, ooh, yeah. that's a well, tough road. he would be really proud of you. What I want to talk about <laughs> is, you know, we had dinner when I came out to visit you and your husband, Jim, who's been also a tremendous force in getting allergy treatment around the country. You know, we talked about the struggle that you had in getting your protocols out there. I mean, I know from your dad, I mean, people right. used to turn their back at him at meetings, which broke my heart. And then when you started telling yeah. me your story, this is what I want our, our listeners to know. We have this female doctor who, outside of academics, pushed and pushed and pushed to get <laughs> something really important done. So maybe just share with our listeners a little bit too what that struggle was like. You know, having to, you would go to medical meetings, try, like you said, you were approaching academic researchers. I'm familiar with some of them. We're not going to name any names, but who weren't like, well, you know, putting out the welcome mat for Dr. Mary Morris. Yeah, definitely not putting out the welcome mat, that's (laughs) for sure. But I think that I really learned from my dad that it isn't about us. It's about the patient. And I think... I think one of the ways that I was finally able to get some researchers to actually agree to do the studies was I I would say, you know, perhaps you're unaware of this study or perhaps you're unaware that we have 230,000 patients that we've treated this way. (laughs) Perhaps you're unaware that we've had no anaphylaxis from our treatment Perhaps you're unaware that I looked retrospectively at the patients that we treat with peanut allergy, and over 88% of them, once they were on treatment and had an accidental exposure, they didn't feel a need to give an EpiPen. Nothing happened. And I think finally they're like, oh, my goodness, Mm. if what she's saying is true, we really should look at that. So it has taken decades and decades of repeating myself and 
being, as you say, being very brave because people have been extremely dismissive of this way of doing immunotherapy. I'm not sure why. In Europe, it's commonplace. So I don't understand why there's still somewhat of this dismissiveness of of this route of administration, but there still is. There's still work to do. I'm still out there working. We have to talk about something that's really important (laughs) because you made me think about this as you were speaking. And, you know, because a lot of times patients would ask me, how come nobody else is doing this? And my answer would be, well, I don't know. This is, you know, (laughs) this is like to me the latest and the best way. But this is one of the crux of the things which I think we have to bring air out also is that, unfortunately, you know, insurance coverage. And again, that's what sometimes the insurance companies, the drug companies say, oh, this is not covered by insurance. Well, it's not covered by insurance because, you know, it didn't fall into their way of doing things, even though this might be better and safer you know, they like the old ways, you know, they have control. And and I hate to even bring this up too, but even the allergists for a long time, you know, like to have control. This is the way we were taught to do it, you know. And, uh, you know, I I always give the example, I I want to share this to the listeners today too. You know, when I give presentations, you know, at at conferences, I'll put up a slide in the beginning when I was talking about sublingual drops. I put up a slide, I would show a picture of a cardiologist in 1940 who was, had his stethoscope draped around him and he was listening to the patient's heart and then it would flash, go forward to, you know, 2019. You see a cardiologist with all his echocardiogram equipment and all the latest stuff. And yeah. then, I, then I would show yeah. a slide of an ophthalmologist in, you know, again, 1940s. He had his ophthalmoscope, you know, the thing that the, the doctors look into the eye with. And then I would show in 2019, you know, the ophthalmologist with his la- latest laser equipment. And then I would show a picture yeah. of an allergist in 1940 doing his algae injections and, this, you know, testing like that. And then I show in 2019 an allergist giving injections again. And I said, what's wrong? Identical. Right. What's the wrong with this? It was like a time warp. Why, why, why didn't this field advance like all the other ones? And I'm embarrassed about that. Yeah. But I think now with the work that you have done and was pioneered by your dad and now being shown by researchers everywhere – that this is the advancement in allergy and it's going to change people's lives, especially who suffer from dangerous food allergies. Is there anything else you'd like to add? It's an an exciting area. When I think of the patients I see every day and the variety of things that are treatable, that we actually are getting at the root of the problem by giving them allergy treatment that modifies their immune response, not only while they're taking it, but changes it to the point where even with stopping treatment, the benefit remains. If I could get every patient, family member, and allergist to understand immunotherapy is disease-modifying, it is something that we can give that changes the root of the problem. What an amazing tool! Yeah, it it really is incredible. I still, I kind of pinch myself when I when I'm you know again being able to practice in these times and do this. I'm going to conclude the podcast with this final comments. The podcast that we're doing, the smartest doctor in the room, is almost at a thousand listeners, and I want to thank all of the people who have downloaded. I'm hoping that people will share this with a friend, especially today's podcast, which I think is going to take us up another couple of thousand listeners because it's just so important. And I want to thank Dr. Mary Morris for coming on and sharing her wealth of experience in treating patients with dangerous food allergies, with sublingual allergy drops, 
In my humble opinion, there has been no one who has made such an impact on the field as my guest today. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. It's been great fun. Good. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.